G'day humans. This is another instalment of my collaboration with the University of Technology Sydney, where as a, a visiting fellow there, I get to collaborate with them on inviting amazing people from all over the world to have intelligent conversations that burst through the sorts of boundaries that universities are currently too cautious, some would say cowardly, let's generously say cautious, to, uh, to break through. Uh, not the University of Technology Sydney, and not its uh, wonderful dean uh, of the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences who has put this program together. I'll talk about today's guest in just a moment, but uh, first, uh, I'm, uh, I'm noodling a little. I'm noodling on the Omicron variant. Not quite sure what to make of the Omicron variant. If you're listening to this anytime after November, December of 2021, I hope that you don't even know what I'm talking about. I hope that you cast your mind back and go, oh yeah, remember when they were momentarily shit scared of some new variant from Africa? Hmm, turned out to be nothing. I hope you're not listening back on this going, oh Nelly, poor old Zeps, poor old Zeppity baby. He had no idea what was coming. He had no idea that that thing was resistant to vaccines and was about to plunge the whole world back into March of 2020 again. Uh, I hope that's not the case because I'm supposed to be traveling to Europe and the United States next week, taking a Christmas holiday at just the perfect moment when the virus decides to throw up the largest, most significant, most challenging variant that we've seen to date. People don't like this. I mean, I don't like it, but I sort of accept it as a reality that there will be waves of new kinds of this pandemic. Others seem to dislike it when I even suggest that this could be a big deal. Maybe I'm being tactless, but I tweeted on the 28th, which was two days after it was announced and one day after scientists started shitting themselves. That's the technical term, shitting themselves. I tweeted, I, I feel a bit like I did in February of 2020. Everyone's still babbling about nonsense while an asteroid is coming. I wish I could stop their worlds from being upended. I am sleepwalking. I hope I'm wrong. Hashtag Omicron. That was in one of my gloomier moments. Perhaps I should be more pepper, more upbeat. But some of the responses online are just, I mean, some of, some of you have just gotten deranged. Hopefully not you. But like one person replied, the asteroid is already there in your nightmares. Tough it up. Plenty of us are relaxed as we've ever been. Someone else tweeted back, this one's on you. You are going to have to accept that COVID will always be around, always circulating and evolving. It's not the responsibility of anyone else to indulge your fantasies of a different world. Like, how how quickly am I supposed to make friends with the emergence of a new variant here? Like, can I have a day? Can you give me one day? Is that all right? Can I, can I like, just freak out for one day? Are we humane enough to, to tolerate that? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? The asteroid is only in my nightmares. No, three and a half billion people have, been, have just been vaccinated in one of the most grueling uh, uh, periods of anyone's living memory. And if it all happens again, it's going to totally suck dog's balls. I, I'm allowed to say that. 
is I'm not imagining that the pandemic was disruptive and frustrating, right? I'm not imagining that the past two years has been very different from what it was before February of 2020. Am I? Is this just, is this, it's not the responsibility of anyone else to indulge your fantasies. What fantasy? I'm the one being realistic that if there is a major new variant, then 2022 is going to be a lot more frustrating than if there isn't. That's all. I'm not calling for some huge policy change. I'm not arguing for endless lockdowns. I'm not arguing for border closures. I'm not arguing for anything except that these fucking douchebags who keep going on about how we all have to man up would just acknowledge the reality of the fact that a world in which there's a rampaging pathogen is different from one in which there isn't. And when we've all just endured so much hardship in getting everybody vaccinated, in locking down in the places that we did in order to save other people's lives, you fucking assholes who did who never wanted to lock down to save anyone's life. Just man up, dude. Just, just man up. Yeah, tell that to the people in the nursing homes. Tell that to old people. Tell that to people who are immune compromised. Just man up. I mean, the idea that we would go through all of this and then face yet another round of some new boogeyman virus that starts wiping people out. I'm not saying that will happen. I'm just saying the fact that it is more likely today than it was four days ago sucks. I'm allowed to say that. The other craziness on Twitter lately has been yet another round of American hand-wringing about what a totalitarian dictatorship Australia has become. This time, as always, stoked by the inimitable likes of arsehat, quasi-journalist, dude bro, formerly alt-left, now alt-right adjacent Tim Pool, who... Like, what is this What is this saviour complex that you all have about Australia? that so many Americans on the far left and the far right have about saving Australia from itself. Like, we're fine, guys. We're we're dealing with it in our way. There are lots of mistakes that are being made. There's lots of overreach. There's lots of stupid lockdown rules. I've argued, you've heard me on this podcast, argue against them in enormous frustration time and time again. We get it. We're a democracy. We're sorting it out. There are lots of mistakes that America made. They were mistakes mostly of omission, Australia's mistakes were mostly of commission. Maybe that makes it easier for a libertarian-minded person to be critical of Australia than America, because at least America screwed up by doing nothing, whereas Australia screwed up by doing something. Maybe they think that shoulders more of a responsibility. I don't, really. I mean, this latest round has been caused by the fact that Australia was woefully inadequate at vaccinating our First Nations people, the Indigenous Australians, so in the Northern Territory, there were outbreaks. Well, there were, out, there were outbreaks in remote Indigenous communities all over Australia. But in the Northern Territory, it was the most marked because the Northern Territory, no offence to Territorians, is a vast wasteland of desert in which Indigenous communities are extremely isolated from good health care or the other trappings of first world civilization. And once the virus got into these communities, then, I mean, it would have been game over. These are people who suffer from terrible comorbidities and diabetes and short life expectancies already. Uh, The idea that you would just abandon them and leave them to suffer the virus, the vagaries of this, this virus without being, without the protections of vaccine or vaccines and first world medical care, 
because your libertarian Tim Pool bro instinct thinks that it would be too patronizing or paternalistic or condescending for the government to go in and collect them and take them into managed care, managed isolated care. Concentration camps, in other words, concentration camps, you're sending them to concentration camps. Was it against their will? Many people ask online, why don't you answer the simple question? I saw Claire Lehman, the founder of Quillette, being badgered, hounded by Americans about her failure to supposedly clearly answer the question of whether or not every single Indigenous Australian in the Northern Territory who was uh, a close contact of uh, someone with coronavirus or who had caught coronavirus was going by choice into these managed quarantine facilities or whether they were being taken against their will. And it is a tricky question because I'm sure there were some of them who were being taken against their will. I'm sure some of them had swallowed online nonsense put out by the same types of people who are now critical of Australia that vaccines are dangerous. I'm sure some of them... Look, let's even grant the most extreme version of our opponents' arguments. Let's steel man our opponents and say, all right, there were some very well-informed, maybe even vaccinated Indigenous Australians who didn't want to go into managed care, but who had to, who were forced to against their will. So that's an infringement of personal freedom for two weeks in fairly luxurious facilities with three good meals a day. What's the alternative? And does the alternative to isolation expand human freedom more or constrict it? Because the alternative to putting Indigenous communities into managed isolation where they can recover, get proper medical care and not spread the disease is for their communities to be wiped out. So in a sense, respecting the rights to liberty and autonomy of every single individual in a remote Indigenous community with low vaccination rates and high comorbidities and immune problems is tantamount to giving the most extreme and obstinate member of that community a terrorist's veto. A veto that says, because I demand that I not be, I not participate in this state-run fascist totalitarian operation, I am therefore exercising my right to kill and contaminate everyone else in this remote community. I mean, what other alternative is there? I suppose you could only take the people who want to go and then the rest of the community is out there to fend for themselves. And what community do the community leaders who chose to leave come back to? A semi-ravaged wasteland in which many of their peers are now mortally unwell. These are not people for whom who, who would just be sh- largely shrugging off coronavirus. These are not. This is not Joe Rogan living out in the bush who's just going to pop some ivermectin and get some fancy blood transfusions and recover. There are large numbers of elderly Indigenous Australians in very remote areas without adequate medical care who need to be taken care of. So I just think the whole conversation around freedom and liberty has become somewhat deranged. I think it's deranged in Australia because we don't pay it enough attention. We don't, it isn't, especially in jurisdictions like Victoria and Western Australia, there's no 
real appreciation of the trade-offs of lockdowns and lockdowns are, are treated as kind of the first step in border closures as the, the first tool in the in the arsenal without a recognition of the fact that you're tearing families apart families who have family members abroad businesses who need to do cross-border trade and just the sanity of people in places like Melbourne who've had to endure lockdown after lockdown after lockdown with no necessary reason for it things like curfews at night when there's no epidemiological justification for it I'm I completely understand all that there, there is there is too little focus on individual autonomy and liberty in Australia but meet me halfway guys let's accept that in America individual autonomy and liberty has become the sole yardstick for a lot of people it's like like I say if, if it's the only thing you focus on then you give the most reactionary individualist a terrorist veto over everybody else because when you have a pathogen in your system you're exhaling that contaminant onto everybody else what about their freedom what about their freedom to breathe air that isn't going to kill them I mean it's not a dissimilar rationale to me for the argument against smoking inside I have a right when I'm in a bar to just breathe air, just normal air. Maybe someone walks past with some perfume, so I get a little bit sniffly. Maybe there's an odor that I don't quite like. That's fine. But for you to sit at the table next to me and persistently chain smoke cigars would be an infringement of my rights. Like I do have a basic right to breathe air that is not going to kill me. So if you want to smoke a cigarette, go outside. And if you want to be an unvaccinated douchebag who parades around with coronavirus, just don't do it in a remote indigenous community where people are really vulnerable. That's not freedom. That might fulfill a strictly libertarian conception of freedom, in which means that the state is not involved. Okay, whoop-de-doo. What kind of a world does that conception lead to? It's, it's a world in which wild pathogens run completely free. I mean, it's it's a world of the most extreme forms of like Florida at the peak of the coronavirus pandemic. Hospitals completely overwhelmed, people needlessly dying. That's not a great model either. Surely we have to find a middle ground between these two extremes. Anyway, I hope that in subsequent waves of the pandemic, and let's hope that Omicron is not one, we do strike that ground. And I think it's quite likely that jurisdictions like New South Wales in Australia, the most populous state, home to Sydney, where I live, is doing a reasonably good job. Let's hope they will. I don't think we're going to go back to, I mean, there is no, you know, Sydney has been open now for some time, completely open. The borders are open. I'm traveling internationally. People are coming back in. There's no more hotel quarantine for people coming in from abroad unless they come from nine countries in Southern Africa. That was just introduced within the, you know, post-Omicron. And now there's a 72-day home isolation requirement when you're coming in from abroad, which strikes me as reasonable. I won't like it if I have to spend, say, a week at home when I come back from being abroad, but that also strikes me as a reasonable imposition on my freedom. But the idea that anything that the government requires me to do makes it fascistic, grow up. Like, are we in first-year political science at university where we're taking the most extreme possible rigid doctrinaire ideas about political philosophy without any understanding of context and trade-offs. 
there has to be a better way. And let's hope that we can navigate Omicron with sanity and generosity and no knee-jerk uh, totalitarian instincts like those of the Victorian, well, some some people in Victoria, shall I say. I won't throw anyone under the bus by name. There has to be a better way. And let's hope that we can navigate Omicron without the knee-jerk totalitarian instincts that some Australians have exhibited and without the tough bro, dumb guy shtick of the American alt-right libertarian girly men. So today's episode, a fascinating conversation with Dr. Dina McMillan. She is a social psychologist. She's a relationship expert. Uh, She got her doctorate degree from Stanford University in California. And she's best known for a book called, But He Says He Loves Me, How to Avoid Being Trapped in a Manipulative Relationship. She wrote this about a decade ago, and it is an exposition of her expertise about the early warning signs of manipulation and abuse. But this conversation is not about that. This conversation is about race and wokeness and the culture wars. Because what Dr. McMillan noticed was that the tactics that she came to understand in abusive relationships were being perpetrated by the far left in the modern culture wars. The tactics that abusers use. I want to read you something from her Twitter, which is quite fascinating. She talks about nine characteristics of gaslighting, basically, that she notices from abusive relationships from women who are trapped in abusive relationships. And in her mind, much of culture is currently trapped in the same way that a woman might be trapped in an abusive spousal relationship, but we are trapped by our abusers, and our abusers are the cancel culture brigade. Here are some of the characteristics of such a relationship. One, they deny they said or did something even when you have proof. Two, they accuse you of doing things that you know they themselves have done. Three, they turn others against you to take away your support system. Remember, this applies both to the current culture wars when you're talking to someone who's super woke and also to a woman in an abusive relationship of her partner. Four, they tell you you're crazy. Five, you're never right. Uh, You constantly feel like you have to defend reality. Six, your trust in yourself intuition erodes. Seven, you always feel confused about whether you're on good terms. Eight, you're not allowed to have feelings. Nine, you find yourself collecting proof things happened so you can reassure yourself. It's a weird leap to make. It's a kind of fascinating leap to make. And she's a fascinating person to talk to about all of this because she understands the way that human beings interact and manipulate each other better than most people do. As I say, this is a collaboration with UTS. Please go and look up the Permission to Think series for more information on these interviews and the people I'm speaking with. Dina currently lives in Melbourne in Australia, which made this conversation super easy. And before Christmas, I am going to hold an 
AMA, an Ask Me Anything episode, where you can ask me any questions that you might uh, you might be interested in my opinions on. I would love to hear from you. We've got some questions rolling in from the last time I put a, a shout out out. Uh, but please go ahead and email uncomfyconvos at gmail.com. That's uncomfy with a Y, U-N-C-O-M-F-Y, convos, C-O-N-V-O-S, at gmail.com, and send us your question. Or tweet at me on Twitter, Josh Sepsa on Twitter, and we'll curate all those. I'll do a special Ask Me Anything episode for the holiday season. Can't wait to see you then. In the meantime, enjoy Tina McMillan. A social psychologist is different from a clinical psychologist in that we don't study neuroses and psychoses and people with personal problems. Um, we stand back a little and look at the ways people are, are influenced. Everything from how you learn to how you're persuaded, how you're manipulated, how you're coerced, even how you're brainwashed. And we do a lot of experimentation on how that can happen, how you can actually manipulate and maneuver things and get people to change their beliefs and their behaviors, especially when it can be done without alerting them that you're actually actively manipulating them. So, What got you interested in social psychology? Um, I was studying psychology as a general topic as an undergraduate and took a social psychology class and just fell in love with it. I thought it was fantastic. So I kept going all the way through and got my doctorate. And tell us where you grew up and what that was like. Um, I'm a military kid. I'm known as a brat. So my (laughs) father was in the army when I was growing up. So I lived quite a few places, including going to high school in Germany. And then I went back to New York and stayed there for a while, um, got married, had a baby, decided to go back to university, and nine years later, I graduated. Did you like living in Europe? I loved it. I, In fact, living in Germany, we lived there for three years, and then my dad got transferred back to the States to New York. He's not from there. None of us are, but that's where they sent him. And... I really wanted to get back to Europe. So when I left for college, rather than looking for a college in the States, I went to the American College in Paris. So I went and lived in Paris for a while. It's a tough life. That must have been a a good good, (laughs) place to spend. Well, I mean, I was a broke student, so it's not quite the same as go there with enough money to go to all the fabulous restaurants and things. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was absolutely phenomenal. I think Paris and New York are both cities where uh, they're great with a lot of money and they're great with no money as well. You can scrounge your way along the banks of the Seine or along the East River and still still have a blast. Uh, so where did you end up studying? You went to Stanford for uh, social psychology? Yes, for, for my master's and my, and my doctorate. Um, I went to City University uh, Hunter College in New York for my undergrad. I started at the American College, but I didn't finish. And then I went back to the States And then I went to Hunter College and I did finish then. And I decided I was going to go for graduate school to whatever university was rated number one that year, U.S. News and World Report. 
rates the universities in, this, in the United States. There are about 28,000 of them. They rate them every year. So I said, whichever one is number one, that's where I'm going. Tell us what university life was like. Did you find it welcoming? There's a whole conversation going on at the moment about campuses going crazy and being super woke and you know all the old establishment professors in having run-ins with students who are coming in who wanna run things their way. What was it like while you were there? Well, it was interesting because the wokeism was there, but it was, it was more underground. Um, in fact, I ended up having to replace one of the professors that was on my committee for my doctorate because she didn't like the topic that I chose for my doctorate. I had worked on a landmark study of homeless and formerly homeless and at-risk families. And I suspected that being on welfare, you know, being dependent on the government would have an impact on how people live their lives, how they thought, their relationships. And so I decided to study that for my, my doctoral thesis. And one of my professors was very woke and said I wasn't supposed to look at welfare. I, you know, I was supposed to just leave that alone. I told her I was a social scientist. There was nothing that was off limits. And I ended up having to replace her. Wait, what's the thinking about not studying homelessness? I don't even understand. No, no, idea. not homelessness, welfare. Sorry, welfare? She didn't want me to look at welfare because there's a disproportionate number of black people on welfare. Ah. No, she was white and I'm black. She didn't want me to look at it. Right, she's telling you how to be a good black person. Yes, again, <laughs> we, we had some of that there. I personally thought you can't fix anything if you don't really know what you're looking at. So I went ahead and studied it and I see why she was worried. There was not just a statistically significant impact of being on welfare, it was a dramatic impact. It had a very dramatic detrimental impact on people's lives. Welfare did? Yes. Is that because of how it was delivered and how the system was managed? Absolutely. I mean, all the rules from, you know, from the well-meaning pre-woke woke back in the 1960s who decided to make it easy for uh, poor women to get welfare, and you had generation after generation of poor urban people brought up with no fathers in the house because one of the rules was you could not have a man in the house if you were going to receive welfare. So you have all of these children with no fathers and the detriment of having no father. Um, also, getting money without having to work for it, it gives you no sense of purpose. It makes you highly dependent. I found the people that were on welfare compared to an equally, equally impoverished population who actually had jobs, but they just had low paying jobs. They had stronger relationships with their families. They had stronger friendships. They had more hope for the future. It was not a good thing. And part of your expertise there became abusive relationships and manipulative relationships. What did you come to, to learn about the structure of those relationships? Well, that came about because my daughter's best friend, her mom came to me and, and you know, most people don't know what a social psychologist is. They think we're a clinical psychologist. She just heard psychologist and thought, and, and she came to me and said, she had a close friend who was in an abusive relationship, could I help? So I spoke with the woman, I did what I could, but I realized I didn't know enough about that specific topic. 
So I went and got additional training specifically about abusive relationships and seeing what a pervasive problem it is. I've been working in that field, not only in that field, but in that field ever since. What do we know about how those relationships work? Um, what, <laughs> what do or we, don't. What do I know, yes, yeah, the difference. Um, unfortunately, I've run up against a bit of a wall for a lot of people because I look at most of the domestic violence services that we have now, they're pretty much the same as when I started in this business 20 years ago. Because they wait until after someone gets into a very imbalanced, toxic relationship, and then if it gets really serious and physical, they'll offer them some short-term, temporary, topical, minimal help. I looked at it on the other way after working in the field for about nine years. I realized my social psychology was actually very valuable because I recognized the tactics, the manipulation tactics being used by abusers from the very start of these relationships. And what I saw was that there were only a set number of manipulative tactics being used no matter who the person was. It was a small discrete set. I could teach the information to anyone. So I put my unmasking the abuser program together and started teaching it to anyone age 13 and above. What are some of those tactics? Well, the first thing I would say is um, too much too soon. One of the things that with abusers, abusers have a lot of psychological problems. And when I do workshops, depending on the demographics of the participants, I talk about the psychology of abusers because it's quite distinct. And one thing is they are very uncomfortable in a relationship where they don't have total and complete control. So the relationship goes really fast. So you go from not at the guy's not in your life to he's all over your life in one fell swoop. Right. <laughs> that sounds a lot like falling in love. Is it hard to tell the difference? No, it's not hard to tell the difference at all. It really isn't. In fact, one of the things I, I try to do is teach the difference between falling in love with someone and being lured into a manipulative and toxic relationship because there, it is quite distinct and it is really important to know the difference. So what is that? Because if I'm going head over heels, I'm crazy about somebody that I can't imagine living without them because all of the dopamine is, is juicing my brain and I have visions of us together forever. How, do, how is that noticeably distinct from what you're talking about, the kind well, of the, the warning signs of a manipulative or abusive relationship? Well, first of all, one has to ask how quickly did it happen? Um, with the abuser, the relationship, first of all, there are tactics happening. You don't just fall in love. This person is purposely putting lures out there to pull you closer. So using things like what I call the fairy tale lure, the moment you go out, they're talking about a future together, they're talking about happily ever after, they're talking about naming your children, you know, this kind of thing. Um, I also teach people if you fall in love and collapse yourself into relationships, you're going to spend a lot of time in therapy. Um, that's just not a good way to, to run your life. You're going to 
You're going to find yourself in love with people who don't love you back. You're going to find yourself in unhealthy relationships. Put the brakes on it first. Be careful, because if you choose wrong, it can be extremely destructive to your life. Anything real will be there if you are just a little bit more cautious. Anything real bears up under scrutiny. How do you teach resilience once people are in such a relationship? Well, it's, it's, it's really challenging. You have to start where you are. I, one of the things I'm putting the course together, and I was writing today about the fact that often people fail at acquiring new skills because they try to do it all at once. And you always have to start where you are. And the Chinese have a very wise saying that, you know, journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. If you're going to start being resilient, if you're going to get out of an abusive relationship, you have to start where you are. So emotionally, just pulling back just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. And then once you get used to being there, you pull back a little further, you pull back a little further, you pull back a little further. This dynamic between someone who is potentially an abusive or manipulative partner in a relationship and the target of their affection, if you can call it that, that can be reflected in group dynamics at a social level as well. Uh, and that's one of your sort of great insights, I suppose. Can you tell us the connection there? Well, it's, it's interesting that if you, one of the things with my podcast series, for instance, I took my entire project and I put it in a podcast series called Unmasking the Abuser. And I walk you through all the tactics. And as I said, the list isn't long. But what is amazing is that you see the same tactics being used, whether the person using them is male or female, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or a work relationship, you also see it in social movements. You see the same sort of lures being used like a love bombing. You know, if you look up the word love bombing, you see a lot of that in cults. And what that is, is someone just showering you with, with praise and superficial acceptance and talking about how wonderful you are and how great you are, um, but it comes with conditions. If you do anything, if you ask questions, if you stand back a little, if you're not willing to immediately collapse yourself into that relationship, then that tap of wonderful praise and good feelings is turned off immediately. And you see social movements doing it all the time. What are the kinds of social movements that do that? I mean, I'm sort of, I can imagine some self-helpy sort of personal development type oh, or yes. even, or even you know, Silicon Valley tech bro cults, uh, you know, nudging at the edges of that. But, uh, but what do you see? Well, I have to say that whenever I've had an opportunity to go to one of those change your life in a weekend seminars, the ones where they have the intro that's free, where they get people to bring all their friends. I always go along and look to see which tactics they use. But I see right now the progressive left, otherwise known as the woke, are using all of the tactics from my abuse series. And it really frightens me where it presents, everything has all of the solutions, but you're not allowed to ask questions. It, you have to absolutely stick to the narrative with no exceptions. 
if you stick to the narrative, if you say you're one of them, then you can do all sorts of things wrong and it's accepted. It is really, it's really quite frightening. I, have we, to say, I, I look at it and it's, I find it quite frightening because it's an absolutist totalitarian religion. It is not, I can't even call it a social movement. It's more like an extremist religion or one of those weekends where they claim that you can change your life. Can you, explain, can you explain, Dina, to people who aren't very online, what the sort of nature of this movement is? Because I feel like we've had a hard time giving it a name, really defining exactly what it is. Uh, you know, John McWhorter has his terms for it. You know, other people have their terms for it. Uh, we can call it woke. We can call it a, a certain elitist, uh, you know, regressive leftism or something. But can you kind of help people who don't spend all of their lives on Twitter understand what it is that you're talking about? Well, so, uh, I, I don't think I spend all of my life on Twitter. Oh, no, I'm talking about me. <laughs> I was going to say, though, I have been on there more since, you know, recent events have kind of impacted <laughs> on my social life. But what I'm looking at is if you have a movement that says it's about justice and fairness, and but if you ask questions, you see inconsistencies. For instance, it's supposed to be a movement that supports women's rights. But so many of the groups that are also supported by this, this movement don't believe in women's rights. And what women's rights are you talking about? If you are a conservative woman, your rights aren't included. You can, you can be bullied enormously, terribly, and that's okay. It's just, there's so many contradictions in it, but you're not allowed to notice. You're not allowed to step away. You're not allowed to say, I believe in this part, but I don't believe in that part. Because if you're not all in, you can absolutely be bullied. And that's what I mean about an extremist religion. Because it, it, with a social movement, it's like if you look at the environment. I come from California. So I care about using recyclable things. And, you know, the place I lived in California, we got rid of single use plastic, you know, 20 years ago. So I like seeing things about re regenerating things, taking care of the earth. But some of the movement, some of the things they advocate, I don't buy into. And I don't have people protesting outside of my house because of it. With the woke movement, if you are a public figure at all and don't buy into every single thing that they say, you can be bullied to the point where you lose your job, where, you know, they'll post, they'll dox you, they'll post your personal information online, you'll have all sorts of people calling you names. If you're female, you often get rape threats and death threats just for questioning what they believe is right and true. That's, I find, very scary. So I suppose the acolytes of this way of thinking, uh, the social justice warriors, if you will, would say to that that 
this is what women and people of color have been enduring from white from the white patriarchy for centuries, feeling like they're being sidelined, uh, diminished, spoken over, and abused, and that uh, that what they're trying to do is excise from public discourse people who are racists and sexists and proto-fascists. They see themselves, needless to say, as being on the right side of history uh, and fighting for progressive causes. And yet they would look at someone like me and give me a hard time because I don't buy into everything, because I ask questions, because I have been trained to assess research. So when they give me crap research and say it proves their point and I can see through it, they come down on me like a ton of bricks. So as a black woman who has faced racism, I, I mean, if anybody follows me on social media or in any of my interviews, and in fact, my YouTube videos, I talk about the racism that I have faced as a black woman. I talk about sexism, and I talk about the fact that the social justice warriors are making everything worse. That is not how you cure the problem. Was Stanford racist? Very. It was the, it was the worst racism I'd faced in my life. Are you kidding? Um, they didn't know I was black until I showed up because even though they had affirmative action programs even then, I didn't want anyone later on to say that I'd only been accepted at the university because I was black. Now, my name is Dina, so you cannot, that's a woman's name. They knew I was female, but they did not know I was black until I got there. And then the war started. So I was treated so badly. It is like I could make a Netflix drama off of how I was treated because I was black. How did it, that show up, Dina? I'm sorry? How did that show up? What sort of things? Oh, it was very simple. Uh, when I was in class and in my year, they had over 700 applications for the PhD program um, and they only accepted nine. And so it's a small class. When I asked a question, I was ignored. What I asked was not ever considered. When the professor would arrange to have appointments with each of us, they wouldn't show up to mine. They kept quoting research in the courses about how inferior black people were. I didn't find out until my second year, after I'd learned to analyze the research, that they were using, they knew they were using absolutely irresponsible research that was not, it was not rigorous at all. I think it was kind of an experiment to see what, what I would do. Um, I was, in fact, when I graduated, they finally had a chair for my department who was the first time having a female chair in my department. And she asked me point blank, how do you handle being treated so differently? from everyone else. I told her eyes on the prize that I, that I had known and grown up seeing people set on by dogs, beaten, hanged from trees so that I would have an opportunity to compete. So unless they killed me, and I mean dead, because even if I were on crutches, I would have still gone to class. I told them point blank, you're not getting rid of me. Were you afraid of physical violence? No. That's one thing. They were, no, they were way too cowardly to ever do anything like that. That's too easy to prosecute. That's too easy. That's too easy to have evidence. 
um, they had a lot of leeway in how they behaved um, because they were tenured professors. The, you know, the top professors had all been tenured professors at Harvard who had been lured to Stanford. Uh, and they got away with a lot, but they knew they couldn't get away with that. So, no, I was never physically threatened, but they did everything they could to get me to quit. And when you were living in Germany and subsequently having lived in Australia, do you notice any differences between the way that racism plays out in those places versus the United States? I've lived in England and France too, by the way. So, <laughs> um, yes. Um, even being from California, and California is definitely not a state with strong racial divisions. Um, people keep giving Australia a hard time, but I have faced much less racism in Australia than I did in the States, even in California. Um, in, in Germany too, we moved from the Midwest to Germany and I was treated better. And I was like, this is amazing. These people were the former Nazis and they treated us better than we were treated at home. I thought it was really sad. In what ways did that show up in your daily life? Can you give us an example? Yeah, an easy example. <coughs> how, how people, how easily and readily people will just start a conversation with you. You know, um, how little old ladies act when you walk next to them on the, on the sidewalk. Do they seem unnerved or scared? Excuse me. <coughs> um, do people, and if people chat with you and like you, do they invite you to your house, to their homes? Um, Australia's been amazing. And it, but I want to say something, and I have to put this out there because I have to be fair. What I didn't realize until I'd lived in Australia for a few years is how much of how I was being treated, not all of it, of course, but how much of it was actually coming from me. My, my father, when he retired from the military, retired in Tucson, Arizona. And when I lived in California, of course, you go to visit family, you go to see your parents, go for Christmas. I was very underwhelmed by Tucson. I thought it was kind of an unfriendly place. I moved to Australia. In the first two years, my daughter came out to visit me. I couldn't afford to go back. I was short on time, short on money. So two years after moving in, living in Australia, I went back to Tucson. Now, politically, nothing had really changed. It was no big difference. But all of a sudden, everywhere I went in Tucson, the cash, cashier would start a conversation. People sitting next to us in the restaurant would start a conversation. Um, people would smile at me longer, longer eye contact. All of a sudden, I was treated completely differently. Now, I, you would not hear me speak or look at me and say, oh, she must live in Australia. So it's not that my living in Australia started the conversation. They'd have no way of, of knowing that. But my nonverbal behavior had changed from living in a country where I was basically accepted. It's funny that you say that people in California assume that Australians are, are racist or more racist because it really depends on what your definition of racism is. There are certainly codes that I have to speak in with my American counterparts, mostly white university educated American counterparts that I have to adhere to, that I don't have to adhere to in Australia. And I certainly don't have to adhere to if I'm speaking with friends of mine who are black, but there is such an uptightness at the moment among, and, and terror, really a terror amongst white Americans about making sure that they do the correct 
thing racially that it it means that all of those all of that closeness and that casual and that laid that casualness and that laid backness that you normally use to stoke closeness with another individual have fallen by the wayside and at least i find the relations between races in the states at the moment to be boxed into quite a, a cold and and rigid archetype because people don't feel free to treat each other as human beings they're treating each other as racial categories that they have to make sure they speak to perfectly correctly otherwise they'll they'll be hounded so i wonder if that's part of the difference between australia and the states right now well one thing you you know that in australia if you can't take a joke don't come here so anybody listening to this if you're super sensitive and everybody has to use the latest term for who you are, don't come to Australia. Nothing is sacrosanct here. I remember when I was working on a show and at one point I was trying to explain to the cameraman and the, the crew why I was having such a hard time at my day job where everyone kept giving me a hard time about being American. And they were like, we don't understand why you're so sensitive. And I said, okay, try to understand this. By putting down my country, it's like saying your mother is a whore. And they stopped and looked at me. And then one of the guys said, yeah, but she's a good earner. And the next one said, she taught me everything. <laughs> I mean, they just went around like this. We got no work done because we were on the floor, cracking up laughing like you would not believe. Welcome to Australia. <laughs> It's funny. Um, maybe there's a difference here between between terminology in terms of what we mean by racism. The, in other words, the difference between racial bias, uh, racism, uh, language codes. What do you what do you, what is racism to you? Um, racism to me is racial hatred. Um, and I learned this from my mother. My mother, when we were young, I was like seven, and. We had lived in some military bases and then we moved near my mother's family in the Midwest. And we, at first for about a year, lived in an all black area. And then we lived in a, we, we integrated an all white area. And my, our mother taught us, there's a difference between ignorance and hatred. So she said, pay attention when someone says something that you find offensive, because it may be just that they don't know any better. And that person who says that, if it's out of ignorance, if you handle it well, they could turn out to be your, your new best friend. Hatred comes out differently. And when you correct them and say, that really hurts my feelings when you say that, and here's why, they keep doing it. So unless it's directed hatred, I try not to take offense. You know, if, if I live in an area, I live in Victoria and out in the suburbs. There are no black Americans out here but me. So if somebody said something that was offensive according to the latest Black Lives Matter protesters and I got offended, all that would do is make them uncomfortable with me. It would not inform them in any way. And if they didn't mean it to be offensive, why should I get offended? I guess I've been in Australia too long. I don't You've know. been in Australia way too long, you know. <laughs> you, know you don't sound like uh, like Americans sound. I mean, you know, not to generalise, but I just saw a poll in from the states of uh, Hispanic Americans, 
and 4% of Hispanic Americans preferred the term Latinx to Latina or <laughs> Latino. 4%. And yet Latinx is now the, the term for Latino and Latina Americans at national public radio, in the official government documents, in the Biden campaign. This has been taken on. This is just as an example. It's supposed to be a gender neutral, uh, you know, uh, more politically correct term for Latino people. But this is something that has become entrenched as a result of largely white university educated elites insisting on the use of a term that the people who they're talking about themselves, 96% of them, don't even want to be called. Well, look how they treat black Americans who don't buy into the I'm the victim mindset. We get called white supremacists. I, and, and please understand, I am not part of that group that says that there is no racism. Um, I am above everything, a social psychologist. So I'm looking at patterns of behavior, nonverbal cues, eye contact, smiles, conversation, tone of voice. I've been trained to see how the differences and how people interact with each other. So I can tell the difference. I know there is still some racism. I'm not going to pretend, but I also know getting rid of it by having violent protests and looting and making white people so self-conscious around you, they're afraid to say anything. That is going to set up such an extreme backlash. It's going to take us back to like the 1890s. I just, and notice again, they did not ask the Latinos what they wanted to be called. They decided for them. I found that scratch a lefty, find a racist. They are so elitist. They are so white man's burden with regard to, to ethnic minorities. They don't want us to make up our own minds. Nothing offends them more from, than a black person saying, I'm not a victim. What do you do then, Dina, about what, what they call structural racism? I mean, yes. you're, talking about, you're talking about a kind of a racism which is a, an antipathy or a hostility uh, from a person of one race and maybe a belief in, in racial supremacy. Uh, what about the institutional ways, the subtle ways in which people of minority races are disadvantaged in the 21st century? Absolutely. I, I even did a video on this on how, why how systemic racism was set up, why it was set up that way. It was set up as a way of, of keeping people in their places, making it seem right and true. So all of the systems had to interact together. You know, the banking system, finance system, culture, a marriage system, everything had to work together. Otherwise, you would have constant discord and constant revolution by the people who were being oppressed. So both sides, the people who were advantaged by the system and the people who were disadvantaged had to be taught it was fixed, it was inevitable, and on some level that it was right and true. So it, it pervaded all the laws. So as time went by and the laws, you know, protests started, the civil rights movement came, the laws started to change, some of the, while the systems themselves would alter, Sometimes the people who had been hurt by the system all this time weren't really aware of it. It's one of the reasons, if you want to look at racism in America, compare the outcomes for Black Americans versus Caribbean people who moved to the United States and Africans who moved to the United States. They moved to the United States based on the laws and the cultural norms 
of when they move, not the historic system that kept blacks marginalized and depressed. So they have different expectations and so they're treated differently. They'll try for different things. And they have different outcomes, as I understand it, as well. Absolutely, I mean, they have first, different First or outcomes. second generation Nigerian Americans, I think, have a median wealth above the average white person or a median income yes. above the average white person, in contrast to people who are descendants of slaves. Yes, but also, too, people have to take into account culture. You also find that blacks who live around whites do better than blacks who live around blacks. And the reason is that cultural norm often when, I mean, even if I were talking about my parents, when my parents were small, my dad was born in the South during Jim Crow, when he could have been killed and nothing would have been done about it. You know, so they grew up when racism was the law of the land. So there were a lot of things that they didn't strive for and a lot of limitations they thought might still be there because that's how it was in place and so firm and so dangerous to step outside the line when they were growing up. Although to, to give her credit though, my mother was unusual. She came from a very well-educated family. My great grandfather was a professor at the University of Colorado. I have a great uncle who was a Tuskegee Airman. And if your audience members want to see something really interesting, they should look that up. There was actually a film with Lawrence Fishburne from The Matrix called The Tuskegee Airmen. My great uncle was one of those guys. The first flyers, combat flyers for the United States during World War II with absolutely the best record of protecting the bombers that they escorted of anyone. Um, they were all lawyers, they were doctors. So even though we grew up without money, my mother had an idea that with education, you can do whatever you want. If you have a certain mindset, you can do whatever you want. And it has, it made a huge difference. I didn't grow up with that, you know, the white man won't let us do mindset, like many black people grow up with. And yet, then when you got to Stanford, you experienced all of the racism that you found at Stanford from the white professors there, which would seem to play into the current narrative that all white people are racist, even the, even the left-wing liberal ones are racist. This is all part of a, a kind of racist patriarchy, essentially, and that without dismantling the structures of power, we're not gonna be able to achieve justice and, and equity. Is, like, explain to us the difference between the forms of racism that you found at Stanford and conventional Southern Jim Crow conservative racism. Well, you know, the senior professors that I was having so much difficult, difficulty with at Stanford were absolute fallacies, and I'll go on record calling them that. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, but there were also female professors and, and male professors in other departments and people working in the financial aid department who were white, who really went out of their way to make sure I had enough funding to keep going. And so I never saw it as they're white, so they're all out to get me. I saw it as these guys have some serious issues and someone give, needs to give them a swift kick in the backside. But I never generalized it. That's probably how I, I was able to get through. I never generalized it to everyone else. I did not hold other people responsible for their silliness. That's interesting because generalizing to everybody else, or at least everybody else within a certain racial or gender group is 
basically the philosophy now of what you're expected to believe if you are a progressive and if you are to be considered an anti-racist and and anti-sexist so much so that i mean I, I remember i'm sure you will have seen some of the images out of the the pro the protests after the death of george floyd last summer in the united states and you know one of them that sticks with me is an african-american police officer being shouted at by a young white girl who's accusing him of being racist and one of his colleagues says he can't be racist he's black and she starts screaming she's foaming at the mouth talking about how of course you can be racist if you're black you can be structurally racist because you're part of a system of racial oppression just because you don't have personal animus towards someone else doesn't mean that you're not a cog in a racist machine oh, and, and so on Talk to us about education. Where is this coming from? Where is it going? It's this indoctrination. I blame all of us because I, I sent my daughter to school. My daughter's so much more left-wing than I am. She'll wake up one day. She's getting <laughs> to go as she goes along. But I'm looking at this, the education system and Malcolm X, who I don't agree with on some things. He had a different philosophy of life. But darn if he didn't say some, some really true things. He said only a fool would let his enemy teach his children. And the problem is we've been so worried about being nice and getting along that we have not been paying attention to what our children are being taught about right and wrong, about family structure, about who we are, about what we should attain, about our history. We have allowed these extremists with this very totalitarian religion to come in and take over our schools and teach our children self-hatred, other hatred, disrespect for their parents, teach them that young people know more. I noticed this even when my daughter was young, that all of the shows targeting young people always had the young people presented as smarter than their parents. That's so dangerous because you really aren't. Hasn't that always been a strain of American culture, Dina? The, the, the sort of aspirational, we are a young country, a visionary country, looking forward to the future, sloughing off you know, British royalty, having a revolution, paving the way forward with Hollywood and Silicon Valley and, and Wall Street. It feels like there's a certain vigor in at least the, the, the assumption, if, even if it's not true, that uh, the future belongs to the young and, the, and, and old fuddy-duddies should just get out of the way. Well, innovation is one thing. Believing that you're smarter than your, your parents is dangerous because the brain is not really fully formed through the mid-20s. And even then, if it's full of indoctrination, it's going to take you somewhere grim and scary. Um, it, we are an innovative country, but if you look at the television shows and things from like the 1950s, even 1960s, you did not see... She, it presented to young people that they were always smarter than their parents. And television isn't just television. Media isn't just media. When you study the brain, social psychology studies the brain and how we actually interpret information, how we get an idea about the world that we live in. And if you look at the imagery that is presented to young people and has been for the last 20 years, there is no way the culture that we are promoting will allow us to continue to succeed. We are so vulnerable to being conquered by enemies who despise us. We're so vulnerable to just falling apart. 
part of the reluctance perhaps amongst establishment people to metaphorically slap down younger people who, who, who think that they know everything about, about the way that the world works is that they'll be regarded as being bigots. They'll be regarded as not being uh, kind. I mean, some sometimes accusations of hate speech are leveled against people for, you know, having a different opinion about immigration or a different opinion about something that a generation ago would have been regarded as being well within the bounds of a liberal democratic discourse. Since you're a social psychologist, how does one sort of rebalance that power dynamic? Well, because we're in Australia, I would say grow a pair. Um, right now, I would say I have faced enormous animosity because I'm plain spoken about these things. And we have to be willing to have people dislike us because if we keep giving in, our society is going to be completely destroyed. So someone calls you a bigot, oh, well, you know you're not. Don't, and, and, and of course, please do not try to explain to them why you're not. Don't tell them what an ally you are. Don't be an ally to anybody. Take every cause as it comes. If it's a genuine cause, it will not mind you looking closely and seeing what's going on. It will not mind you looking out for your own interests as well. It will not mind you thinking, okay, let me have a think about this. It's only when someone is trying to indoctrinate you that they expect you to give in, to submit to whatever they say, or they'll call you names. Now, how is that not abusive? You must submit to everything I say to you, that everything I want from you, even if it hurts you, or else I'm going to punish you. For me, that's the very definition of, of, of abuse. You used an interesting word there, Dina, ally. Uh, you know, don't try to explain why you're an ally. This has become, you know, five years ago, people didn't talk about the importance of allyship. What do you make of allyship? To me, allyship is tolerance. It's saying, I'm going to ignore all the details and any questions that I have so that you won't dislike me or look at me as someone who's narrow-minded. Um, I explain very frankly to people, I'm no one's ally, I'm a social scientist. If you want me to support your cause, show me the facts, stand back and let me look. Um, it's so interesting because one of the big tactics that I talk about is misattribution. And I see the woke using this so much. Misattribution is putting a positive spin, a positive label on a negative behavior. Saying you wanna be someone's ally. That sounds like a nice thing, doesn't it? It sounds like, oh yeah, you're understanding. In actuality, what it means is you ignore everything that shows that your values clash, that your values are inconsistent, that what you're supporting may actually be harming you. It reminds me of the British being allied to the Soviet Union during the Second World War. We had absolutely nothing in common with Stalin. He was such a force for wrong, and yet we ignored it because we were fighting together against the Nazis. Mm. There's also a certain condescension in it, isn't there? I mean, there's something I find uncomfortable about the, the notion of being an ally 
to a member of a minority group because there's something almost paternalistic about the notion like in rather than rather than respecting you as an individual with whom I can speak freely as someone who is capable of hearing what I have to say judging it on its merits and then giving as good as you get I am supposed to treat you as someone who is solely in a position of schooling me about how I should be the best ally for fear that I should hurt you in some way and I have to tread on eggshells in order to do so. That, that for me is, is part of the, the concern about allyship, that it becomes essentially a subservient position to the person who's insisting on it. Well, it, it, it's two things. It's, it's the person who's demanding someone be a good ally. It means you're supposed to accept what I say with no assessment of whether it's true or not, whether it harms you or not, whether it, it is going to take us into a bad place. You're just supposed to be quiet and clap whenever I say I want to do something. But at the same time, and any group you're allied to, you kind of look at them as your pet. You know, almost like you pat them on the head. Because in order to be an ally to somebody, you almost have to think they're not important enough to really alter your, your quality of life. And it's just not true. We just need to lose the whole concept. If you want to support people who do things, think a certain way or whatever, do so. But by calling yourself an ally, it means there's no discernment and there's a submission and a lack of honesty on your part about how that person's values lifestyle, uh, what they're demanding is impacting you. Don't worry, Dina, we're not going to be clapping along. We're just going to do jazz hands because claps can be triggering to people <laughs> these days. You know, <laughs> exactly. uh, you said something interesting there. You said you have to accept what they say, whether it's true or not. But truth itself is now something <laughs> that is questioned because their truth might be a lived experience and that might give them standing to talk about something that you're not allowed to talk about. So this is another thing that is coming up increasingly in, I suppose, what you might call the culture wars, which is we can't really, you know, a white person can't have a conversation with a person of colour about police brutality against people of colour because the white person hasn't experienced the lived indignity of being uh, oppressed by racist police. You know, someone who doesn't have a grandmother who was in the Holocaust can't talk to someone who did about the nature of you know, Judaism or whatever it might be, or anti-Semitism, because they don't have the lived experience. How do you balance the, the value, if any, of lived experience? Well, lived experience is also subjective perspective. It also doesn't look at causation. It doesn't look at interaction between these people. Um, it's a way it's a it's a mild again misattribution lived experience is a nice way of saying let me bully you you submit to what i say and you don't complain about it or else i'm going to pick on you so i'm not saying lived experience doesn't have value i we've been talking about the fact that i experienced significant racism when i was in graduate school for instance and that was it mattered but by focus, by saying no one else has a right to talk about it unless they've had the exact same experience that I did, 
we're losing out on shared experience. For instance, when you have black people saying, oh, no white person can understand what I'm going through. If you get a group of women together, there are so many things that women often experience we have more in common than we don't. And you lose that if you automatically look at anyone who doesn't look exactly like you, sound exactly like you as your enemy. We're also being trained. I mean, I suppose it depends what you're talking about, doesn't it? Because obviously, if you're talking about what it feels like to be oppressed in a certain way, if you've never been oppressed in a certain way, then you can't, you don't have the standing to have a conversation about what that feels like. But if, on the other hand, you're having a conversation about public policy, about, you know, that is dependent on, for example, data about Indigenous deaths in custody or something like that, then you surely can have a conversation about that data, even if you're not an Indigenous person. But we seem to currently be confusing those two categories of conversation such that you need the lived experience in order to have standing, even to have a conversation about facts on the ground. Is, that, is there a way out of that Chinese finger puzzle? Yes. And, and with my Healing the Rift program, because what I did is in 2020, when I saw the Black Lives Matter protests really taking off, and I knew, because as a social psychologist, I've studied flow-on effects, and I knew that this was taking us in a place where racial disunity was going to become significantly worse. So I did, developed a program called Healing the Rift. And let's talk about the lived experience thing. Let's say that I'm dealing with someone and you know their grandmother was in the Holocaust. If that person and I get together and I, they do everything and we have a safe space together where I'm not considered a bad person because I didn't, my grandmother didn't go through the Holocaust and she's not looking at me as the enemy and I know that, then you can actually have something where you find common threads, you find storytelling, where you can walk that person through what you're talking about, allowing them to see the world a bit from the eyes of the person who has experienced whatever it is you're talking about, and give them some level of understanding. But it only happens if they're not under attack, if they're not, if you're not making them defensive, if you're not criticizing them and calling them privileged, this whole world, word privilege is just, it makes my, I tell you, my dentist said, you know, you're grinding your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hearing about too you. much privilege, Doc. Yes, I'm grinding my teeth. What do you make of privilege as a notion? Why does it make you grind your teeth at night, Dina? Because it's normally, again, what the woke have done very cleverly and in a very sinister way is alter the definitions of everything. So now racism is just being white. Um, it used to mean conscious hatred of other groups because of their race. Now it just means walking about living your life if you don't happen to be black or, or brown. Um, when you're talking about privilege, privilege used to mean somebody with a trust fund who would get bailed out of jail even when they committed a crime. Now it's saying, if I am a group, if I belong to a group, whether I'm born into that group or whether it's a group that I have decided to join, 
then you are privileged if you're not in my group. And therefore, you have nothing to say. You should step aside. You should let me do what I want because you're privileged. It's it's absolutely, and people get so defensive, and I'm glad they get defensive because they should not accept this. I try to explain to people that what they're really describing isn't privilege. It's saying that the group you belong to does not normally face negative discrimination because of, of that characteristic. So if you're talking- Isn't that a privilege though, Dana? In a way it is. It's like when you walk through life, let's, let's talk about an example growing up. When I grew up, if we went on a road trip, we would have to think about where we were driving through and how they treated black people. Because it may be possible we wouldn't be able to find a place to get food. We might not be able to find a place to sleep that would accept black people. If we broke down on the side of the road, we might not get any help. So in that way, I can understand that not being exceptional, not being facing negative discrimination because of a characteristic does give you a bit of an edge. It's not a privilege, it's just a little bit of an edge, but it doesn't take into account anything else that is going in your life. I know white people that have had much harder lives than I've had, much harder. So the whole isn't, isn't the point of articulating? Sorry, sorry? Isn't, isn't the point of articulating white privilege not to say that all white people have it better off than all black people, but that that they're, that a white person doesn't have to worry about being discriminated against on the basis of their whiteness, and that is a certain um, privilege. I, I walk into a shop, I don't have to worry about whether or not the person behind the counter is racist. Maybe I do if they're you know from some particular ethnicity that has a chip on its shoulder about white people, but generally generally not if you if you are the same if you belong to the same group as the people in power then on a on a as a general rule you're not discriminated against because of that it's like the way that men can walk through life in a way women can't i know that jackson katz who wrote the macho paradox does a seminar where he has its mixed sex seminar. And he starts off by asking the men, all right, guys, I'm gonna write this down. What did you do today when you got up to keep yourself from being sexually assaulted? The guys laugh, a few of them say, I didn't go to jail, but for the most part, they make a joke of it. Then he asks the women and they start the list. I wore this, I didn't wear that. I looked where I parked my car. I had my keys here. I told somewhere I, one where I was going. So again, you're talking about the fact that when you don't belong to the group that has the most power, it does impact what you have to think about as you go through your day, as you decide what you're going to do for your living, if you're going to planning your holiday, for instance. And it does matter, but the approach that we have right now is so alienating and so divisive, it really isn't going to make things better. The backlash is going to send us back to the 1850s if we're not careful. Since you're speaking about, about gender and the benefits of being, um, a, a, of being a man, certainly when it comes to 
sexual assault. Do you think there is a gender split on this ideology? Is there a difference between the susceptibility of men and women to wokeness? Yes, I think women are far more likely to get caught up in it. Because from the time we're small, culturally, women are rewarded for being likable, for being accommodating, for putting other people's needs before our own. Males are not usually brought up that way. So you do have a lot of woke men, but not nearly as many as you have woke women. I've heard you before make the analogy of the Puss in Boots char character in, uh, in Shrek, which I think is charming. Do you want to tell us about that? Uh, in what context? What was I talking You were talking about how the Puss in Boots character in Shrek, when, they, when he wants to manipulate anybody, start, the lip starts quivering, the, uh, the tears start flowing, and then out comes the sword and he stabs you in the, in, the, in the chest. And the analogy that you were drawing was that there's a certain sort of performative victimhood that takes place in some of these conversations in terms of the group dynamics that you're a specialist in with regards to social uh, psychology, where yes. hamming up the, you know, one's own uh, offendedness becomes one of the tools in the armory of, uh, of, of your group succeeding. Yes, it, it really is about right now, there's a, a competition to see who can be the most victimized. But walking through life as a perennial victim is first of all anybody that knows you it's draining but often like like puss in boots there's often a sword you know a lot of the groups that are getting so much time and attention right now and getting so much accommodation because they know how to do the big eyes and the quivering lip and you know and so many people have been conditioned to accommodate whoever is standing in front of you and crying but should you look a little closer at what they're asking and how it's going to impact you and how it's going to impact your family. And you look at what they're claiming to be the truth and seeing some real holes in the data and the sword comes out and you can get really damaged because the vindictiveness of the perennial victim is exceptionally high. They are extremely vindictive. Are we training victimhood? Are we encouraging? Absolutely. Victimhood? Anything you give attention to. That's why um, I'm, I have one more video. I have my, my videos. I promised people I would do a video. My first video was called Why You're Not a Racist, because I didn't want white people to think, you know, it's fair for somebody to switch the definitions on you, and then all of a sudden, just for being white, you're a racist. The second one's called Bias Isn't Bigotry. All of us have bias. It does not, a bigotry is a a deep-rooted and heavily clung to hatred. So I want people to understand that too. And I'm going to do something called Being Black, the Shadow of Racism. I want to show white people how the systemic racism that was there for so long, how its shadow is still cast into the lives of the average black person. And it can't just be dismissed by saying we're not like that anymore. We need to have a concerted effort to do something about it. But after that, I'm going into influence. I'm going to show people the tactics being used to condition us in the worst possible way to give in to whoever claims to be a victim group, to uh, preach self-hatred. You know, it's like a race to the bottom 
I can hate myself more than anyone else. Anyone who's demanding that you pay a price for historic crimes is trying to manipulate you. And one thing I really want to do, I want to make good people manipulation proof. Why shouldn't you pay a price for historic crimes? Germany pays no. Germany pays Jews for the Holocaust. Uh, you know, the, the, the structures of, of white people are still benefiting from the unpaid labor of the ancestors of people who are alive today? Because it will never end. There has to be a point where you're like, okay, you can actually establish a system that tries to correct for past mistakes without making the people now feel guilty for that for what happened. If you didn't do it, you shouldn't pay for it. Otherwise, it's like the whole philosophy about an eye for an eye and then everybody ends up blind. It, all it does is build resentment. It does not correct the past ills. And it teaches victimhood, it teaches entitlement, it teaches manipulation. It's too expensive to correct it that way. We, some, we sometimes hear the term intergenerational trauma being used as a justification mm -hmm. for, you know, paying, you know, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, the, the movement to, to pay the for reparations? Reparations, that's right, my apologies. You sometimes hear intergenerational trauma as a, a term that's being used for reparations and, and so on. Does it make sense to you uh, that trauma can be inherited intergenerationally? Absolutely. And it's funny because I do work in a lot of different communities. I do work in the Jewish community and um, I've met two women who are doing research on findings that the anxiety levels, stress levels, depression levels of Jewish people who had grandparents who survived the Holocaust are significantly higher than among Jewish people whose grandparents didn't go through that experience. So they're also finding that we can, that uh, extreme trauma can actually mark your DNA. So there is something to it, but here I'm going to people, I hope you don't have any black Americans walking, watching this because they're going to get really mad at me. When you look at the reparations, the demand for monetary reparations, I think is a wrong approach. If you want to do reparations for the black community, then we should do things like communities, build community centers and teach financial literacy. Um, have sociologists go through and look at the cultural factors that are holding black people back. And look at the history of those and talk about correcting them. That's the kind of reparations that will actually have an impact. Show young black kids how to save and invest their money. Just handing people who've never had money money, all it's going to do is attract a lot of predatory business people who will get them get that money off of them as quickly as one, two, three. And it won't. I somehow, I somehow get the feeling that those proposals are going to go down like a lead balloon. Uh, generally, well, they should do. But I'm, I'm looking at what would really help. I'm looking at you know all the talk about the Black Lives Matter protests talking about we have to get rid of the police. You know, they really have a grudge against the police. The police is the least of our problems in the black community. Kids with no fathers is a huge problem. 
Lack of self-esteem is a huge problem. Not understanding our history is a huge problem. My mother taught us black history before we went to kindergarten. She taught us you correct ignorance with knowledge. So when the little white kids in our new white neighborhood said, black people had never done anything. We were like, the first man to die in the Revolutionary War was Chris Pathetic, and he was a black man. So, that's <laughs> us kids. We nice sat in impersonation the of yourself at the age of you eight. You can so see me really there. Funny. I was like in the front, we were in the front of the class. We were the little black smart ass. You know, Charles Drew, the first man to, to perform open heart surgery. We were like, she said, fight ignorance with knowledge, and she gave us that knowledge. So we walked in with a sense of pride and it made all the difference. I come from a poor black family, five kids. My dad was enlisted military, no money. Four out of the five have university degrees. Three out of the five have graduate degrees. The odds, that is well above the average. And it's because of the mindset my mother taught us. Hmm. There's a, a narrative going around about white fragility. There's a book called White Fragility, which is <laughs> mandatory reading now in the United States, especially for, oh, yeah. uh, for, for the woke. And the, the thesis broadly is that when you try to talk to white people about racism, they become defensive and they're, they're very fragile in acknowledging their own complicity in racist structures. Um, this makes it very difficult to ever dispute the claims of anyone who accuses you of being racist because your 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 disputing of the claim is itself more evidence of their thesis which is that you're fragile uh, so it's a kind of ingenious non-falsifiable um theory i wonder if you thought about about how that is functioning between groups yes and and that would be white tears you're talking about white tears yep and i've actually heard somebody a black young black woman talk about someone in a totally different context because she's woke and this, this incident had nothing to do with race whatsoever. But when the woman got upset, oh, it was white tears. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, if they say it's a bad craftsman who blames his tools, if you're teaching whites about racism and they're getting angry and defensive, then you're teaching it wrong. It's not because whites are fragile. It's because the people teaching this are hostile and they're teaching self-hatred. And the only reason to teach someone self-hatred is so you can take advantage of them. So but maybe, uh, maybe the whites are so ignorant in their own self-certainty about their own goodness that they can't bear to hear the truths about the system that they're part of. Well, it's our, it's our role as educators to break through that. I haven't had that problem. And as you've noticed, I'm not the kind of, you know, conciliatory, oh, everything you do is okay kind of woman. I mean, I'm, I'm quite blunt. But I also advocate for whites, please stand up for yourself. These people are trying to absolutely destroy everything that is good about our society. And I just, whenever I see those abusive tactics being used, it makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. And I'm like, nothing good can come from this. So again, if, if the people in your audience are getting defensive, that means for me as an educator, I need to find a way through. And that's what I do with my healing the rift. I don't find people getting defensive. You called it a totalitarian religion earlier in this conversation. And certainly it has 
aspects that religions do. It has its own taboos. It has, you know, the end. I've heard John, John McWhorter talk about the N word as being almost like you might find a, a culture that has a long dead ancestor that they can't name who is now a god or something. It's, it's like it's almost gotten to that that level of, you know, that he who shall not be named. It's, it's the Voldemort yes. of, of words, regardless of whether or not you're using it in a particular context. Even if you're saying you should never, ever say the N-word, you still can't say the actual word. Otherwise, for some reason, you you summon the, you know, the, the demons and the volcanoes explode and we'll, we'll go to hell. Um, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if you can just tease out your thinking about the, the, the parallels between wokeness and faith. Well, because you're taking, first of all, when you have a faith, by definition, not every aspect of it can be proven. So when I'm, there are aspects of woke culture that are being really supported in society I look at every study I can find, and I turn immediately to the methodology page. And I am amazed, but no longer surprised, that if I had presented methodology that shoddy, I would never have graduated. So you have the jargon, you know, even you were describing that young woman who was you know, really castigating a, a police officer and using all of the ideology, all the ideological terms, all the jargon with regard to why he could be a racist as a black man when she's never walked a mile in his shoes at all. Um, when you have that, you have the jargon, you have the absolute beliefs, you have the trained thinking where you look away from anything in your own tribe, in your own belief set, that's incongruent. You don't focus on it. You get really angry at anyone else who questions any aspect of what you believe. You don't look at the real flow on effect of your beliefs. The people who are at the top of your religion are allowed to behave in a way that is morally in conflict with what you claim to believe. If you're one of the top people, you can literally do anything and get away with it. Now, how does that not echo what we've seen in very powerful religions? where And everyone who wants to be get the approval of that group has to kiss the ring. And they have to, whether they really believe in it or not, they have to make a promise to not say anything that goes against any of the expect the accepted narrative. It's like if you look at at Joe Biden's history of what he believes and who he is as a person, what he's supporting and what he signed into law with those, you know, um, those what do they call them? Executive orders. Hmm. First got into all first day in office, he signed a bunch of executive orders. And one point said, "I don't even know what I'm signing." Said, "Keep signing it." He doesn't believe a lot of what he's supporting right now, but that's the deal you have to make with this group. Because if they get angry, then they burn down your cities. And of course, punishing dissenters is part of any good religion or any faith, you know, calling out blasphemers, essentially. And we, we see this, of course, in, in social justice movements. But what's been striking recently is that 
people who ought to be in a position of authority to be able to uh, to stamp out that kind of misbehaviour just aren't. And I'm just talking about people in companies who might be the head of a, a company, people even in academic institutions and universities will feel too cowed to be able to stand up to the students who have a, a certain ideology and who are, who are calling out blasphemers for not being part of their their clique. Are institutions to blame then? I, I see what we have is we have a culture that is, we've gone too long without in training our people in what it takes to have personal courage. You know, we've tried so hard to be accommodating to everyone that we are not clear of what our own values are and are not willing to defend them. When we see things that are so in conflict with each other, one of the things that I thought was really astounding about the woke is that so many of their beliefs are in complete conflict with each other, but nobody that's part of their group is allowed to, to comment on them. Like what, Dina? Like being pro, supposedly pro-women and um, supposedly pro-gay rights and also pro-Islam. And I'm looking at this and going, hmm, one of these things is not like the other. So I'm looking at this and saying, does anybody else notice that this doesn't make sense? Right, Saudi Arabia and Islam are, uh, and uh, ISIS are well known for their feminism and, uh, and gay rights. And, and having people that are leading the, the women's march in, in the United States who want to institute Sharia law in the United States, but now they want to come down on Texas for changing their abortion laws. And by the way, the states have rights with regard to abortion laws and those abortion law changes started happening under Obama. So we cannot hold any president, even Biden, we cannot hold any president to blame for that. That's not how it works. But their values just don't mesh together. And no one that's part of that religion is allowed to really comment on it. Or else you're vilified. You're, you could even be thrown out of the group. The end game seems to now be something that's called equity. The end game in the era of Martin Luther King Jr. was equality, was uh, judge people on the content of their character, not the colour of their skin. That has now changed to a conception of justice that is much more proactive and much more about ensuring that the outcomes for everybody by group are the same. Uh, I think this is probably a good place to end it, so take it wherever you will, but where do you see that going? Well, that, that kind of a thinking is completely contradictory to Western society. It is a socialist ideology that even in the socialist countries has never been borne out by how they, how they live their lives. Those who are at the top of the hierarchy live completely differently. There's no equity. They live in gated communities. They have multiple homes and, and access to things. And we're seeing that also. While they're talking about equity, all of the people at the top of the Black Lives Matter organization are buying multi-million dollar homes in all white neighborhoods. So the, the issue about equi equity never works because all it does is hold back people who could bring a lot of value to their own lives and to the lives of everyone else. So I just hope 
I want to see courage. Courage speaks to courage. I'm going to be brave enough. I want to tell you, I would, you'd be stunned how much money I've lost in contracts because I won't be quiet and just be a good black girl that just echoes, you know, the woke thought. If I were woke, I'd make so much more money right now. Um, but we need courage. We need people to stop and say, this is not going to take our society anywhere we want to go. We don't want equity. We want equality. We want better opportunity. But we're not going to hold other people back because this person doesn't want to work hard or succeed. Dina, thank you for your courage and thank you for your clarity and thank you for speaking with us. It's great to talk to you. Oh, nice talking to you too. Thank you. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.